Rats Maria, welcome to First Up. It is Ratu, that's Tuesday, the 13th of September. Konathan Rarariaho. Coming up, we're going to be live in the UK as the new King Charles III arrives in Edinburgh to hold a vigil for his mother. We caught up for coffee with Auckland mayoral contender Wayne Brown. We're also going to find out why Japanese cyborg cockroaches could save your lives. Uh, New Zealand gets the public holiday on the 26th to mark the passing of Queen Elizabeth. And from this morning, mask mandates are consigned to the history books. You're going to keep wearing yours. I feel good. There's no more masks. I don't have to be Mr. I am Dark Raider. I think it's probably about time, to be honest. For a while now, there's been a real declining attitude towards wearing masks, but I think I just kind of decided I'd keep wearing my mask anyway. Atamaria, welcome to First Up, I'm Nathan Rarere, and we begin this morning in London where plans for the funeral of Queen Elizabeth are being finalised as her coffin lies in Edinburgh's St Giles Cathedral. So with us now from London is our correspondent, Ali J. Morena, Ali. Atamaria, Nathan. How okay, are you? So I'm very good, thank you. Tell me, what's been happening while New Zealand has been asleep? Well, quite a lot. I mean, quite a lot today. It's been very busy the past couple of days with these um, official events. As you say, the Queen's coffin has been taken from Balmoral to the Palace of Holyrood House and then today to St Giles Cathedral where this um, big service has been held. Earlier this morning, King Charles was in London. He went to the Palace of Westminster, Westminster Hall. He made his first um, speech to MPs as monarch and peers in Parliament. Uh, And then after that, himself and Camilla flew to Edinburgh this afternoon, uh, along with his brothers and sisters they had a procession along the Royal Mile in Edinburgh there were hundreds of people lining the streets as well and uh, they're saying as well you can see these clips so as the procession goes um, down the Royal Mile there were originally people clapping and cheering but the sound kind of petered out uh, to this respectful silence for them as they walked as well and then they had this um, service of remembrance with um, speeches and uh, songs as well and now I mean fairly soon mourners will be able to go into the cathedral to pay their respects as well. So the Queen will lie there for for 24 hours um, and people will be able to go in. We've heard people have been queuing up since this this morning because they know they'll be able to, but they've been queuing up and waiting. Uh, And right now, at the moment, um, King Charles and uh, Camilla are in the Scottish Parliament. They've been meeting Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, and they're in the Scottish Parliament at the moment, listening to, um, they call it a motion of condolence from Nicola Sturgeon as well and they had a minute silence. Later on uh, as the events continue today there's going to be a vigil this evening as well again back at St Giles Cathedral and that will be attended by the royal family. So Ellie um, so she's lying at rest at the moment so they've got 24 hours to go through and um, pay their respects to uh, the Queen. Does her body, when when does her body travel to, to London? That will be tomorrow afternoon. So tomorrow afternoon, the Queen's Coffin will go to Edinburgh Airport. It'll be a accompanied by um, Princess Anne, the Princess Royal, and then on to RAF North Holt, which is uh, the Air Force base that's that's very close to London. Um, from there, it's going to go to Buckingham Palace, and it will have a sort of round-the-clock vigil, I suppose, around it. And then on 
Wednesday, there'll be another procession, which will take it from Buckingham Palace um, down the Mall, which is the road sort of straight in front of Buckingham Palace, uh, Horse Guards Parade as well, and then down onto the Palace of Westminster, uh, where she will lie in state there for four days. So people will be able to come out and see um, that journey on Wednesday. There'll also be guns fired uh, in Hyde Park and uh, Big Ben will will sound as well. There was quite um, one interesting thing from today, which people keep uh, noting, is the fact that she had the Scottish crown jewels placed onto her um, coffin. And so these are, this crown is the centrepiece of the honours of Scotland and they're actually the oldest crown jewels in Britain. So earlier today, they were talking about the fact that um, with Oliver Cromwell, the the English crown jewels were destroyed, but the Scottish ones were hidden. So they're actually much, much older than the than the English crown jewels as well. So just I thought quite an interesting piece of history as well. It is, Ellie. That you know, many people are paying respects in in London and going and you know leaving tributes or what have you. I just want to play you this bit of audio from the BBC, and is this the most British thing you've ever heard? Here we go. I want to bring you a little bit of advice that's come from the Royal Parks this morning. They are suggesting that there are enough Paddingtons and marmalade sandwiches in the parks at the moment. So please feel free to bring, bring flowers, but maybe don't bring any more Paddingtons or marmalade sandwiches for now. There, Ellie. No more Paddingtons or marmalade oh. sandwiches. They've had enough. It's quite sweet. Isn't that lovely? I do think that's totally lovely. And that's all because of that um, incredible thing around her jubilee where she did the film with Paddington Bear sort of having tea together um, and people just loved it. I've seen lots of stuff online as well, sort of drawings with the Queen and Paddington and and that sort of thing. But I mean, there are there are tributes everywhere. I was out in town today and every shop has um, a photo of her pretty much and a statement. Uh, also, going past some of the royal palaces. Hampton Court Palace has a place where you can go and leave flowers. So it really is, at the moment, it's it's everywhere. People can go and lay these tributes. But I did hear that. They're asking now for the tributes uh, to be biodegradable, if they can be. <laughs> yeah, actually, I saw some footage of people going down and, and, you know, leaving the flowers there, but just removing the plastic wrapping off them, because, of course, there was a, a, t- a ton of those there in the park. Ali, thank you very much. We'll, we'll bother you again during the week. Sorry, uh, during this, but I, I think we'll we'll try and catch up with Ali J there as well, uh, as perhaps it moves closer to the funeral. But, yes, that's our correspondent there from London. And it is 11 past five. You're listening to First Up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarity. Keen for your feedback. Always love your thoughts when they come in. Ah, big day yesterday, wasn't it? Um, the Yes, the removal of, of we're just, just straight out. There's not even a green light there in your, your COVID settings. How do you feel about that? I, I, it's been interesting what I've seen online. Some people are like, yeah, good. And others saying they really miss that 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 collective feel of the original lockdown when everyone was all battling together in it. And I think we saw at the start of the year that um, there were some that were just never going to come back into that. What do you feel about that? 2101, um, uh, about the lifting of that, or even the holiday uh, on the day. Uh, I think it's the 26th, isn't it, there? So uh, 2101, or you can email us first up at rnc.co.nz or about other things. We'll go to the United States now, where doctors are baffled by the case of a man who's had COVID for almost a year. Adam Headland, who's had two lung transplants, is at a hospital in Milwaukee, and where doctors say they don't know how he's still alive. A mass fundraising effort is now taking place in the city. CNN's Megan Raystad has more. A seat is open. 
at Annie Headland's picnic table. It's a spot supposed to be filled by her husband. Nice one about him. But Saturday night, this park in Frederick, Wisconsin, is full of love for a wife and mom just trying to hold on. We need him home. We need daddy home. A benefit for Annie's husband, Adam, still hospitalized after getting COVID last October. The doctors don't know how he is still alive. Two lung transplants later, he's still trying to get off a ventilator. The Headlands are dairy farmers, so Adam's absence is felt at home and on the farm. It's myself and another girl that milks cows usually. And then Adam used to do all the feeding and um, crops and all that. So when he got sick, his dad kind of came out of retirement and fed friends and family, you know, chip in. Adam is at a hospital in Milwaukee. So between dairy farming and the distance from home, his family hasn't been able to visit as often as they'd like. He was born May 9th and he's seen him twice. Initially, organizers were planning for about 200 people, but soon word got out, so they bumped that number up to 300. And based on raffle ticket sales and just how much food has been served, they're thinking about 350 people have showed up in support. We're running out of food. I've been to Dollar General twice already. Lori Lundquist is a neighbor and remembers the day Adam was born. 40 years ago today. A special day both Adam's benefit and his 40th birthday celebration. It's hard to even thank everybody, you know. Um, I don't know what you're supposed to do. And Annie is at a loss for words. Well, the people that have helped us. Just thankful for so many who showed up when she needed it most. Like I said, it's been really overwhelming. It is 14 minutes past five here at First Up on RNZ National and probably where you are too. Let's go to Japan now. Soon you're actually going to hear about these amazing life-saving cyborg cockroaches. But first, our correspondent in Tokyo, Chris Gilbert, told us about the reaction there to the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Yeah, the emperor, the emperor Naruhito, is going to attend the uh, state funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. Well, at least he's put in his leave. It's a uh, cabinet that has to approve for him to attend, but I assume that they will. It's quite unusual for the emperor of Japan to attend a funeral of a foreign royal. I think the previous one was Prince in Belgium, but apparently it's due to the, quote, traditional close ties between the two households. They'd also be read, possibly, if you look at it through, you know, diplomacy lens, that uh, Japan wants to reaffirm its diplomatic ties with Britain. That's already pretty firmly hand in glove with the U.S. And Emperor Naruhito was actually invited to the U.K. in 2020, you know, a couple of years ago after he just ascended to the throne, but he couldn't go, obviously, because the pandemic had just started. It's not yet decided whether his wife, the Empress Masako, will join him, but both did observe three days of mourning for the Queen over the weekend, and uh, it can be expected that the Emperor of uh, Japan, at least, uh, will be going to the state funeral. Right. One of the things I love about Japan is inventions. I see this. Japan invents cyborg cockroaches to save lives. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Japan, um, we've mentioned before, not exactly known for its animal rights. And I guess that goes all the way down to cockroaches because they just slept at a kind of like a cyborg shell on the back. And now they make cockroaches do their bidding. Oh, a, um, a real a, a cockroach. It's, it's, not, it's not a like, robot yeah, like or a anything. a real cockroach. Oh, my goodness. No, Sorry. It's a, they do this to real cockroaches. Oh, carry um, on. A research institute has invented a cyborg 
insect using Madagascar cockroaches in the hope that they can, you know, I guess to control their bodies and use them to reach people stuck in disaster areas. Um, They effectively put a suit on its back which is then used to control the bug by stimulating a sensory organ in its abdomen. At the moment, as a solar-powered suit, it takes half an hour to charge it, and it's got a battery life of two minutes. Yeah. And it's going to attach cameras and sensors in the hope to reach difficult places, you know, like after an earthquake or something. But I tell you what, Nate, like if I'm stuck in rubble under my coffee table, the last thing I'm going to want to see in the situation is a cockroach crawling towards me when I can't move. Yeah, right. um, the cockroach... But yeah, yeah, but the cockroach was chosen because of its size and its ability to withstand harsh conditions and uh, how easy it is to control. Much more easier, you know, to control it by slapping a robot shell on its back than, uh, I guess, gaslighting it into uh, rescuing people from inside disaster zones. But um, there you go, like just Japan, yet again, the fourth front of technology and innovation leading the way yeah you're right we're sending in the cockroaches no don't i'm in here just trust me (laughs) hey um so i I don't know if you heard so back here at home uh new zealand's covid restrictions lifted uh at midnight where where are things in japan well the the timing is kind of uncanny we're the same you know once again japan and new zealand in step it has finally been revealed here actually we're a little bit behind new zealand because tourists can already go back but it's just been revealed that the government is making adjustments finally to open the border here uh, and remove the limit on the number of people entering the country. So at the moment, only 50,000 people are allowed to enter the country. That's going to be scrapped. Anyone can come in. And at the moment, you can come in uh, if you book through a Japan-based travel agency. They have to book your air tickets for you. They have to make your you know your accommodation arrangements for you. They check up on you. They make sure you're eating properly, etc., etc. You don't have to do that anymore. It's going to be kind of back to normal travel back uh, finally here. One of the last places in the world, Japan, to do this. At the moment, also, you have to get a, a visa, a tourist visa to enter the country. Scrapped. You don't need that anymore. That's Chris Gilbert in Tokyo. It's 18 minutes past five. I'm Nathan Rarere and you are listening to First Up here at RNZ National. Between now and the end of the show, uh, we're going to catch up over coffee with Auckland mayoral contender Wayne Brown. And then uh, National's Deputy Leader Nicola Willis talks to us about that Sam Uffendel inquiry that's still not back, also the traffic light system and meeting the Queen. Time to catch up with the local democracy reporting programme. Now this morning we've got news from the West Coast and it's LDR journalist Brendan McMahon that's with us. Kia ora Brendan, how are you? Good morning. Good, thank you. And yourself? Hey, oh, I'm pretty good. Hey, tell me about this. The real rush of late entries for the local body elections. They've all come quite late. What, what's happening there? Well, so that's for the West Coast Regional Council. I can't speak for the three district councils on the West Coast. Uh, but certainly the Buller Ward um, had 11, uh, which, according to policy.nz, is the highest number of candidates for, for a ward in New Zealand. So, so what, why have they all arrived um, in there? Is, was I, it just people I, thought, I'll give it a crack, I, or what? I think it looks like it could be. Um, as of the, the day before the nominations closed, there were no nominations. Um, the two incumbents were standing aside. Um, but then, yeah, on nominations day, um, they all flooded in, 11 um, nominations. Um, Westport, in particular, has um, a big the flood scheme that they need to get across the line, Um waiting for a government answer on co-funding for that. Um, if it doesn't come through, um, 
there's going to be a big job for the West Coast Regional Council to try and um, come up with something that fits what people's expectations are. Yeah. So, Brendan, was was there uh, was there like an ad campaign on local radio or telly or something to let people know that there weren't many nominations? Uh, the regional council did pop out a press release a couple of days before, but really, I think it was just the good old fashioned grapevine um, <laughs> at work. Basically, people shoulder tapping and saying, "Shit, let's get on with this." Yeah. Now, you know, Excuse people... My oh, no, it's, it's right. There. And, you know, uh, people there, they get in and they've got things to deal with. So one of the things that I, I guess the new leader's going to have to deal with is coastal erosion. Tell, tell us yep. about the situation there. Well, that's... I mean, like everywhere around the country, it's 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 becoming very marked. Um, but here on the coast, you know, with a 650-kilometre coastline um, and a tiny regional council, it's a big issue. Um, we've got um, you know, just about with every rain event nowadays, it seems that um, gravel and debris floods down the farmland and across the roads, closing the infrastructure. Um, and obviously, um, it's it's a worry for for all residents um, when their property is affected. Um, and with that rises the expectation that um, the council will do something to help them, which may or may not be realistic. Yeah. Brendan, thank you very much for your time, sir. Uh, news there from the West Coast from our LDR journalist, Brendan McMahon. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. It's the 13th of September, this day of our life. This is the day in 1916 that Roald Dahl was born. One of my favourite books as a kid was Roald Dahl's Revolting Rhymes. I thought it was fantastic. Also, there was that ad campaign about you never forget where you had your first magnum. That one. I know where I had mine. I was at the Mission Vineyard in Hawke's Bay watching a Ray Charles concert. And it's Ray Charles' birthday today. There you are. He was born in, in 1918. Uh, uh, with us is Anne Geddes, turning 66, living in New York City now, born in Melbourne. I didn't realise that. Uh, but she is a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit. Uh, got that award there in 2004. On this day, let's get some history. On this day in 1933, the Labour Party's Elizabeth McCombs became the first female member of Parliament. She won a by-election in Littleton. In 1965, on this day, the song Yesterday came out. Now, Paul, it's obviously just Paul McCartney, the strings are arranged by George Martin, had a look and according to the Guinness Book of Records, it's the most covered song ever written. The song remains popular today with more than 1,600 recorded cover versions of yesterday. On this day in 1969, um, a a, a TV show came out that loved Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Originally, the dog's name was Too Much. Um, Yeah, but... Obviously, the, you know the story. I don't. You might do the, the man who's in charge of it all is listening to "Strangers in the Night" by Frank Sinatra. Here's the Scooby Dooby Doo. Decided that was a way better name for the dog. It could have been called Too Much. Yeah, interesting. Sounds like a Tiger movie, eh? Too much, uh, too much. Uh, Thirty-nine years ago today, people went, "Oh, what's this?" Turn it up when they heard Pat Benatar's "Love Is a Battlefield" for the first time on the radio. And in 2015, Lydia Ko won the Evian Championship Women's Golf to become the youngest major winner ever at 18 years and 142 days old. And that is this day of our lives. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. Joining us now from the business team is Nicholas Poynton. Kia ora, how are you? I'm well, thank you. We're looking for designs for our school van. And I thought the mystery machine 
you know, from the, the Scooby Doo yeah, van. From Scooby How good would that be as a school pulling in? Probably you know? one of the most famous vans. I think so, because everyone always has, you know, our school, and then the motto under it strive to be great or whatever. Some other great van. I, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, can be that van. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, think about it. Hey, um, the KiwiSaver, this is interesting. You've got to have you ever read your KiwiSaver annual statement? And I thought about that, and I thought, no, I don't think I have. No. So, yeah, the, the question, reason why I ask this question, have you ever read your KiwiSaver annual statement, is because the Financial Markets Authority has just done a big survey of people's engagement with the scheme. And mm. I guess look, what, they want to, what they're looking for uh, are people checking in and how does that contribute into overall um, sort of satisfaction with the scheme? What sort of behaviours is it leading to? Because one of the things that on your KiwiSaver, if you do check it, it will give you an estimation, a lump sum figure that you can expect to have by the time you retire at age 65. And one of the things is, that's one of the things that everyone who looked at their statement, everyone saw that bit. Because yeah, everyone's yeah. interested to know how much money well, am I going to have end, yes, at yes. the end of it. Yeah. And interestingly, it found that a lot of people saw that projection and were actually felt oh my god, that that's not going to be quite enough. Mm. And that in itself may spur, or encourage people to actually think, well, maybe I need to actually up my contributions. Things like that. Trying to get people to think about the future. Also, it may encourage some people to think, wait, I'm only going to have that much? Mm. But I'm in this KiwiSaver fund? Maybe it's time for a change. So I guess that's where the FMA is coming from when they, they do this uh, this survey bi- bian- biannually. And... Um, Biennially, rather, I should say. But one of the things that found that people's overall satisfaction with KiwiSaver down from 79% two years ago to 74%. I guess it shouldn't be too much of a surprise because, for the most part, global financial markets have fallen off a cliff over the first six months of the year. For many people, maybe nearing the age of retirement, to see your KiwiSaver sort of trending downwards. Mm-hmm. So that's, I guess, pretty concerning. You probably wouldn't be satisfied with a scheme like that. But I guess the point that people will always make about KiwiSaver, it is a long-term investment thing, you know, you should never panic. Uh, if you are young and you're watching some volatility in your KiwiSaver, you've probably got about maybe 40 years to recover those losses. That's how you should think about it. Even if you're maybe 10 years away from retirement, it's still maintaining that sort of longer-term horizon. And if you do have any concerns, is to always talk to an expert. So it's that thing with, and I hate using this, so I sound like I'm doing a boardroom talk, but you zoom out on things, right? So rather than looking at the few months or the little line going up and down of markets, is it zoom it out and have a oh, look? Go, look zoom, what happens to world markets over the space of decades. Zoom, zoom out, yeah. And absolutely, yeah. Uh, look, I recently checked one of those websites looking at how much money would I have retirement if I, for whatever reason, earn the same money I'm earning now for the rest of my life. Mm. And um, I kept up my contributions. And then you can adjust it to see how much would I have if I use part of my KiwiSaver for a deposit for a home. Yes, and the difference between the two was shocking. Right. You know, I'm not, I'm one of the people who are locked out of the housing market. Yeah, but yeah. you think about the sacrifice you're going to have to make in terms of retirement. It's quite shocking, really. But, you know, though there are tools out there. Your KiwiSaver statement will have pretty valuable information there for you. And also, really good to check out how much are you paying in fees. It's been a real bugbear of the FMA. They're trying to get... Um, Providers to actually justify the fees they charge. Uh, so the, that's the fees they're not paying GST on. There you go. There you go. I'm paying attention, Nicholas. This is good. I'm learning. I liked economics at school. It was great. Mrs. There Ellen. Mrs. Ellen was the best. She was good. Thank you very much. <laughs> My pleasure. Nicholas Pointing, you can hear more from the business team on Morning Report this morning at 10 to 7. To the maskless money markets this morning. Around New Zealand dollar is out there buying the following 61.51 US cents, 89.33 Australian cents. The euro now just 60.71 uh, cents. Uh, British pence at 50. 
82.55, you can buy 4.25 yuan, 87.53 Japanese yen. And if you're in South Korea, like my mate Nick is at the moment as he's pitching a new TV show, and I wonder what it is, uh, it's worth 844.55 yuan. Well, uh, we are heading toward uh, 6 o'clock right now. And over the past week, um, you've been hearing uh, from the four major candidates vying to be the next mayor of New Zealand's largest city. Uh, this morning, we're with Wayne Brown, the businessman and former Far North Mayor, who many believe has the best chance of defeating the front runner, Ephesal Collins. Now, Mr. Brown is positioning himself as Mr. Fix-It. He's banking on his reputation for taking control of failing organisations, shaking them up and improving their performance. And he reckons that what that is what Auckland badly needs. Our producer Matthew Tunison caught up with Mr Brown for coffee on Auckland's Karangahapi Road to find out a bit about the man and his ambitions for the city. Wayne Brown puts a friendly arm around the proprietor of Little Algiers Cafe on the Ponsonby side of K Road and they exchange jokes. He lives in an apartment just a stone's throw away and they know him well here. We sit in the courtyard out back and order a couple of flat whites. I ask about his life growing up in Auckland. Went to grammar, got a good education. Yeah. Particularly he'd like it, but I got a good education. And what drew you to engineering? Uh, in my huge whanau, yeah. only one person had ever been to, to university. Who was that? <laughs> and, it was a, and it was an older cousin of mine, yeah. and he, he did engineering. Right. <laughs> and so at least I was aware of it. Yeah. And um, and I like construction, and I'd worked to pay my way as a student. I worked as a concrete labourer, then a steel fixer, and then a welder. And so I had a natural aptitude for construction. And that's resulted in, if you look around the corner, you'll see Brown and Thompson Consulting Engineers still going. As well as being an engineering consultant, Mr Brown says he's always been entrepreneurial and has taken on numerous developments outside the firm. But how did he end up with a reputation as a fixer of failing organisations who's been called on by both Labour and national governments? I was rolling out the Hoyt cinemas across New Zealand back in the uh, mid-90s, early mid-90s. And um, there was a guy called Dr Peter Troughton who was a guy who set up telecom in the first place. I don't right. know if you remember him, he might be before your time, but he was a bit of a superstar in New Zealand. And the government asked him to sort out all the district health boards. And he, one thing you learn in New Zealand is that the last place the government ever gets to is a contest between Invercargill and Northland. And um, I happened to be driving north and the phone went and they said, well, it's Peter Troughton, would you like to meet him? I said, oh yeah, I've heard of you, I'd like to meet you. And I went in Whangarei and he'd been going around New Zealand finding people to run district health boards which were about to be a new thing and he'd got sort of fed up with just having accountants and he'd asked is there anybody in Northland that you know in Northland who's done some big projects and someone said well there's a guy from Kerikiri developing cinemas in, in Christchurch in Wellington and so they interviewed me and they said do you want to be on the board? I said I'll be the chairman and so they, I took it out over running a team there and they didn't expect much but we were the first DHB to break even and deliver all of its services and so that catapulted me from uh, you know, a group of sort of senior accountant type PwC types as the one guy got everything fixed.
He was also chair of the Auckland and Tairawhiti DHBs and has headed a number of other large organisations including TVNZ, Transpower, Vector, Māori TV and the Land Transport Safety Authority. He says he turned to politics because the Far North Council was a mess and he and his customers were frustrated by how long it was taking to get permits and resource consents. He won the mayoralty in 2007. Yeah, well everyone said... It's got to be fixed. You're the man. And I said, well, you raise the funds and I'll do it. And that's what happened. He says he left the region in a much better condition than when he took office, with Kaitaia and Kirikiri now booming. But in the 2013 election, he lost in a landslide, following a dispute with his own council over rates and other charges owed by one of his companies. He had written to complain to the council using the mayoral letterhead and directly contacted council staff to discuss the matter. The Auditor-General criticised Mr Brown for blurring the boundaries between the mayoralty and his business interests. It was just nothing. I mean, uh, it was tiny beer and it was a National Party guy trying to um, doing typical what they do, you know, accuse you of something or other that they know doesn't happen but know a little bit of stick. Yeah, and... um, Auditor-General wasn't very impressed. No, the Auditor-General did nothing. There was no fine, no nothing like that. He wasn't impressed with it. But, no, he wasn't impressed with... was critical of the way you had acted. The whole thing they said was, I filled out one letterhead on the wrong letterhead. Now, I've had squabbles with councils, and everybody has squabbles with councils. And they're pathetically small ones. The biggest thing was $12,000 or something. And... um, there would be thousands of Aucklanders currently having a squabble with our council. Not as mayor. Well, but I wasn't doing it as mayor. I was doing it in my... In my you um, had the mayoral letterhead on the top of the letter. One thing, one letterhead. One letterhead, that's what I was convicted of. One letterhead. I mean, and you've got to understand up, up, up in the north, the offices in, for the mayor there are an hour and a half drive from where I lived, and, and, I, and there isn't the availability of doing things great. She just grabbed the first piece of paper. That was the sole thing that they managed to do. In 2019, Wayne Brown led a review of Auckland's port, which recommended shifting much of the operation to Northland. This was rejected by the government, something he's never quite got over. It got rebuffed completely by Phil Goff and Phil Twyford, the two foolish pills, and they just refused to read it. They wouldn't even accept me presenting it. And this is the work of excellent people, and which we did that whole lot for 800 grand on time and on budget, as I would do everything. So I self-funded a speaking tour of business groups to explain what we came up with and why it was rational, which was the managed closure of Auckland Point, Port, leaving coastal shipping and cruise liners here, but shifting the ugly, unprofitable operations up to Northport, where the land is cheap, and they would become profitable, and allowing Auckland to be have its goods supplied from two sides, because half of it comes in from Tauranga now. And every time I spoke, the audience would say, man, that makes a lot of sense, why aren't you the mayor? Mr Brown says he's not a natural politician. I'm not a great kisser of babies or shaker of hands. But places himself roughly at the centre of the political spectrum. Instead of being born into one party or the other, I kind of go with competency. <coughs> And I thought Helen Clark was very competent, so I was Labour, and I thought John Key was very competent, so I thought I was national. Finally, time for some quick-fire questions for Auckland mayoral candidate Wayne Brown. What's your favourite beach? 
Oh, when the, when the surf's not too big, the, east, the left hand break at Piha. What's your favourite bar? Chapel. Chapel on Ponsonby Road. Yeah, that's my church, actually. So. <laughs> Let's say I need to get to the Mangere Town Centre later and I've got to get public transport. What, how do I get there? Bus from the centre, from the Civic. What's the Pacific, Pacifica Island population of, of Auckland? 110,000, possibly. Times two. Uh, okay. Two, What's four, it? three thousand. I've got a friend's birthday coming up, big birthday, 40th birthday. I've got to buy him a nice present, something a bit special. Let's say I'm out west, I'm out Henderson Ways. What do I do? Where, where am I going to go? What do, I, what do I get them? Well, you probably go to Westgate. Yeah. And then you wander around there in the days and finally reach out and buy something or other which is a bit cheaper than what you thought you spent. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's uh, exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it is 20 to 6. I'm Nathan Rarity with First Up here on RNZ National. So still to come between now and 6, the uh, traffic-like system is gone. We hear reactions from businesses and folks on the street. Also, National's Deputy Leader Nicola Willis is with us. Well, uh, it's, we've got none from Morning Report there, so we're just going to jump across to this one at the moment. As of this morning, uh, the COVID traffic light system is a thing of the past. So instead of going to the green light setting, Cabinet yesterday decided we're just going to go straight to, straight to, to nothing. Uh, they're going to scrap the COVID-19 protection framework altogether, and that happened at midnight. So it means that mask-wearing requirements are now gone, except in health and aged care facilities. Uh, while household contacts of people infected with COVID will no longer need to isolate. In addition, all government vaccine mandates will end on the 26th of September. Leonard Powell reports. Announcing the changes yesterday, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern said while masks have played a critical role in slowing the spread of COVID, we're now at a point in the pandemic where keeping the mandate in place is no longer justified. Our COVID numbers are currently at the lowest levels we have had since February 2022. The most recent health advice tells us that with cases and hospitalizations reducing, our population well vaccinated and expanded access to antiviral medicines, that New Zealand is in a position to take its next significant step in COVID management. Likewise, it will now be at the discretion of employers to decide whether their staff are required to wear masks. This is a time when finally, rather than feeling that COVID dictates what happens to us, our lives and our future, we take control back as we continue to drive economic activity and our recovery. This will be the first summer in three years where there won't be the question of what if, where events won't be cancelled because of COVID cases, where our borders are fully reopened and there isn't the fear of being separated or stranded. The first summer where we have our certainty. And that means, I hope, the first summer where the COVID anxiety can start to heal. The Prime Minister also announced the removal of all vaccine requirements for incoming travellers and aircrew. At the same time, all New Zealanders over age 65 and Māori over the age 50 will be able to get automatic access to COVID-19 antiviral drugs if they test positive. On the streets of Mount Albert, I asked people how they felt about the end of the mandates. I feel good. I feel good. There's no more masks. I don't have to be Mr. I am Dark Raider. No. <laughs> but eh, no, feeling heavy. It's all over. It feels good. When I have a mask on, I can't really breathe, especially going into public transport in that. I think it's probably about time, to be honest. I mean, we've got to move on from it at some point. Yeah. Yeah, how do you feel like it's been managed in general, the response to COVID in New Zealand? Pretty better than anywhere else, probably. Amen. Yeah. 
I mean, yeah, I think we've done well, to be honest. Yeah, I'm proud. <laughs> I know there's a few moaners, but you know, it could have been a lot worse, man. I think that we were slow to get started because we were behind in the vaccinations and that, but Jacinda's done an okay job with locking us down for the first year. And no, nah, I think they've done an okay job, yeah. Uh, yeah, so far it's not too bad, but uh, yeah, we have to keep it on because the virus and the outbreak may come back sometimes. It's very conservative. She was very cautious, but I feel like it was too cautious, in my opinion. Um, a bit too excessive. They took their time, but they got there, and yeah, I'm not happy with that, eh? Are you going to continue wearing a mask? Yeah, probably like on public transport and in crowded spots just for a while because I've got a, um, I take disabled people around, so I've got to be extra careful then. I think I would, personal choice. And also I was thinking about it today when I was walking around the mall and I was like, oh, put my mask on. I just feel like it's habit, habit now, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm all for like personal choice, so if someone wants to wear it, then go for it. I hope that people aren't scared anymore because being able to not wear the mask, they're not scared. It kind of brought in the fear factor of COVID. I've noticed for a while now there's been a real declining attitude towards wearing masks, but I think I just kind of decided I'd keep wearing my mask anyway. Opinion amongst public health experts is divided, with some saying relaxing the rules is reasonable given our low case numbers and high vaccination rates. However, Public health physician and University of Auckland Associate Professor Rhys Jones is worried about what the changes mean for vulnerable people. I think what it does is, is raise concerns about how uh, safe and accessible um, public places are now, for particularly for vulnerable groups in society. I'm thinking particularly of you know, disabled and immunocompromised people who um, you know, now face quite an unsafe environment in terms of public indoor spaces not being mandated for masks and um, I think that really will reduce their ability to participate in society. The professionals, a morning reporter up after six and with a sneak preview of what's baking in the oven for the show, it is Susie Ferguson. Kia ora Susie, how are you? Oh, kia ora, I'm well, how are you going? I'm very good, I'm excited to hear what's happening today, what's going on? Well, we're going to be talking, of course, about the restrictions, as you were just hearing there in that package. Of course, pretty much all of those restrictions have gone as of midnight. So we'll be speaking to the Prime Minister on the programme. Over a course to what is going on in the UK, we'll be taking you to Scotland and to London Mm. as we see the preparations for the state funeral of the Queen. I'll also be interested to know what uh, you at home are going to be planning on doing to mark... The Queen's death, of course, this one-off public holiday that we are going to be getting 2101 if you want to get in touch with us. And, of course, morningreport at rnz.co.nz. It's all coming up after six. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Susie. Uh, Susie Ferguson and uh, Glenn Espinar bringing you a morning report this morning. Well, New Zealanders, as you heard, will have an unexpected public holiday on Monday the 26th of September. That marks the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. It coincides with a state memorial service which is to be held in Wellington's Cathedral of St Paul and that will be televised. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern says the decision to hold the one-off holiday gives New Zealanders an opportunity to reflect on the Queen's life of service and is in line with similar holidays in the UK and Australia. The ACT Party and Business NZ were quick to voice their opposition to the holiday, which they say businesses can't afford. Our reporter Felix Walton hit the streets of Auckland to find out what people think of the decision. 
Man, when you're working your own business and doing your own thing, you don't get a day off. Do you feel a little bit jealous then? No, never. People probably need it. Yeah, that's fine. Um, a one-off holiday is fine. I'm actually from Mexico. You know, I think that a holiday is always welcome, you know, for everybody. I mean, people work so much here and in Mexico as well. So, I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to it, yeah. Yeah, I think that's fine. Um, don't have a really strong opinion about it either way. I think it's good. Holiday, public holidays, yeah. So I discussed this with Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis um, and uh, in our weekly chat. But first I actually asked her about the traffic light system. Uh, that was scrapped uh, yesterday and wondered, you know, should we have gone to green? Well, we would have liked to have had the traffic light system abandoned some time ago. But look, we're pleased by these steps. I think New Zealanders are ready to take personal responsibility and to move away from government mandates and restrictions. So this is a welcome change. The Prime Minister said, yeah, you know, our population is well vaccinated. I mean, do you agree? Because there's still an age group of New Zealand that haven't been eligible for a booster, or some of them still aren't eligible for a first dose. That's any protection. Well, I, I'm satisfied that those groups who are particularly vulnerable to the virus have had the vaccine made available to them and I think that's really important and that people can go out and get vaccinated. So where we're at now is uh, if people are worried they can continue to wear masks, they can make their own decisions about what events they attend but for other New Zealanders, the vast bulk of whom are vaccinated, uh, they can get on with their lives. You know the the health system was under stress a few months ago, it's fought back now uh, I think you know as our numbers have dropped or what have you. I'm just wondering do do you think the health system's prepared for another increase in cases because surely this happens with borders opening and less protections? Well, I think we're yet to see what the effect of these changed settings will be, but I think we can react to the facts as they unfold. If there was a dramatic change in the transmission of the virus or a new variant that was posing increased risks, we can react to that at the time. But where we are now, we've seen a big reduction in cases, and I think the um, willingness of New Zealand to comply with restrictions has reduced dramatically. So really, this is just about being practical and sensible. Okay. Hey, I'm just wondering too, and you would have seen, I guess, other people asking, what's happened with the Sam Ufendel inquiry? Because it's taking a lot longer than we thought. Well, I spoke about this last week on your show, and Mm. Maria Jew... KC, I was going to say QC, but um, she's now a King's Council, of course, uh, has not yet completed her report. uh, So that hasn't been received by the National Party, so I have no further update to add. So she hasn't given you a firm date on it or anything? No, not that I'm aware. Okay. And was it, what, have more things come up or is that just, uh, she just hasn't got through it yet? Oh, look, as Chris Luxon said, when we initially said that we thought the investigation would be complete within a couple of weeks, we were probably a bit ambitious. And we think it's very important that Maria Jew have the time to complete the investigation thoroughly and to the standards she sets for herself. Uh, We want it to be independent. We want it to be fair and thorough. uh, And she's allowed the time to do that. Yeah, of course. I mean, the other giant, well, there's been many world events that have gone on, but I guess a big one for Commonwealth countries was the death of uh, Queen Elizabeth II. So New Zealand's going to have that public holiday there on, um, on September the 26th. Do you think it's a good idea? Look, we do support it. This is an extraordinary event. This is something that hasn't happened in 70 years. The passing of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II is something that I think will bring a moment of reflection for many of us and to be able to come together 
as a nation on that day to reflect on her role in the service that she has given, I think is is a special thing, an extraordinary time for the country. Yeah. I know you've met her, and I want to talk to you a little bit about that in a second, but I saw Business New Zealand and, uh, or Business NZ, sorry, and ACT oppose uh, this. They, they reckon it's going to be bad for business. But I'm thinking, doesn't the top left-hand corner of our flag pretty much tie us into remembering the, you know, the Queen when she dies? Well, look, I'm always keen to support business because business supports New Zealanders' jobs and livelihoods, but my experience is that many businesses also want this moment of reflection, and of course, if they wish to keep trading, they can, but they just need to make the possibility of a day in lieu available to their staff. Yeah. Also, too, I was thinking a few of them have got knighthoods, so they might have to give those back if they don't want that. But look, tell me, you met, how did you meet the Queen? Where was this? Oh, well, I was really fortunate. It was in 2008 when John Key had just been elected Prime Minister and um, I, as his staff member, went to London with him and I met the Queen in a giant inflatable rugby ball, which (laughs) Tourism New Zealand had installed by London Bridge. And I was standing in a circle with Richie McCaw. There were many All Blacks present uh, and we were there to be introduced to her. And when I was introduced to her, I commented on her beautiful brooch, which nice. was a diamond silver fern. And she immediately responded, telling me it had been a gift to her uh, from our country, from women in New Zealand. Uh, and then we went on um, to have a chat, and she commented on how large the All Blacks uh, <laughs> were getting, how much bigger than um, they had been in the past. And we had quite a chuckle about that. And yes. I have to say, it was a really warm reception. I was so nervous about curtsying properly and getting things right and she put me completely at ease and actually I felt like it was almost a conspiratorial giggle between women because there was Richie McCaw, the the, the big all black we were um, obliquely discussing. I was thinking, I was actually going to ask you about the curtsy. How did the, the curtsy go? Did you do some practice before you left the room or what do you do with that? Because you've got to get that oh, right. Look. Oh, absolutely. I practiced and discussed it with the other women that were there, and I was very nervous about it and thought quite hard about what I was going to talk to the Queen about and then was quite captured by the moment. And I have to say, it was in the small talk before she arrived with Richie McCaw that I really got things a bit wrong because I asked him about the uh, semi-final in Paris, and he had to remind me that, of course, the All Blacks that year didn't quite make it to the semi-final. (laughs) It <laughs> so was a little embarrassing. Yeah, oh yeah, we did, we uh, the, the Queen's arrival kind of saved me from what could have been a very embarrassing moment. That's Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis. We've had uh, feedback in this morning. He's won that holiday's a great old air, Nathan. Like many, I get to milk the cows all by myself and pay someone else to sleep in. Amazing this government can find money to throw at everything else but expect people like me to pay for their populist policies. Another one, why do you keep saying scrap the COVID mandates? That implies it's a bad thing and is is the sort of thing I'd expect from tabloid Junos. The mandate saved lives and protected health. Surely you could just say that we're ending the mandates. Yeah, you're right, probably could. Yeah. Um, and uh, here's one that's coming from Bear. September 26th should be a holiday anyway because it's that day of the year after daylight savings and it's really hard to wake up. I think it's actually, is it South Canterbury's um, anniversary down that day? It could be. Um, Look, we're playing this to finish the show today because on this day in 1965, the Beatles released this song and it is the most covered song in all of music history. Thank you very much for your attendance today. Full attendance, everybody. Just 
Taking that off, that is good. Morning Report is next with Susie and Guy on. From all of us here at First Up, have yourselves a wonderful day. We'll be back in your ears, our pawpaw, and please enjoy the musical stylings of the Beatles. Why she had to go, I don't know, she wouldn't say. I said something wrong, now I long for yesterday, yesterday. Love was such an easy game to play. I need a place to hide away 